Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Welcome to Cybersecurity Inside. This episode of What That Means, we're going to talk about natural language processing. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about AI in the context of cybersecurity and lots of other things with the director of AI in the office of the CTO at Google, Ashwin Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Camille. Happy to be here. So I want to start our conversation more specific and then go broad. And I think often we go the opposite direction. But we're having a conversation right now. We're two human beings. And I understand that it's a little bit difficult for AI to actually have a conversation. And I'm wondering if you can explain why that's hard and if it's true that it's hard. And has there been any sort of recent evolution or progress in that space? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, conversational interaction is the problem I started working on for my PhD thesis decades ago. I'm still working on it. Uh, So it is a hard problem and it is not solved. But we are making huge progress in getting there. Uh, The reason it's hard is that if you think of what it takes to have a conversation like the one we are having, there are multiple things involved in that. One, of course, we have to understand speech. We have to understand the sound waves coming out of each other's mouths and make sense of them. We have to account for accents and noise in the environment and all of the rest of it. turns out we are extremely good at doing that at humans. And as of about five years ago, computers have pretty much become as good as humans. There are, of course, caveats and different use cases, but we're uh, reaching the point where speech understanding can be done well enough to power conversational AI, maybe not necessarily at human levels. So that's kind of one problem. The second problem is uh, maybe the harder problem, which is once you've figured out what the words are in the sound waves you heard, how do we make sense of the words? What do they mean? Natural language is inherently highly ambiguous and depends on context. Uh, So if I asked you, for example, uh, do I need a coat this evening? The answer would depend on if you're at a formal event and we have a dinner planned, And I'm asking you, do I need a jacket? Is it going to be formal? Or it might be, hey, is it going to be raining outside when I visit you? Am I going to need a raincoat? So even a simple sentence like, do I need a coat this evening, can have multiple interpretations depending on context. And so have computers figure that out from context. And some of this context may or may not be in the words that were just said. Weather is not something we just talked about, but it still factors into the answer to that question. Uh, And then you have to sort of figure out the appropriate response to that. The response depends on what we, you and I know already in our shared context. So I'm not going to reply with something that you already know. So all of these things have to work together in real time. And uh, getting all of that to work is really, really hard. Getting computers to understand our context, understand our shared understanding, uh, understand these ambiguous word meanings, and, of course, process speech in a way that would make all of this work smoothly. Uh, getting that all to work together is a hard problem. We've made great progress on every step uh, of this 
process, but there's still a lot more work to be done. So some of the things I think that would come up in context in a conversation that I would look at are, you know, where is somebody located? Maybe how old they are. You know, I might answer a toddler differently if they asked if they needed a coat in the evening. It would make sense to me in a different way that they were asking. And so I'm just wondering, like how I think a lot of computers, I'll just say computers in a general sense, but different kinds of sensors and compute devices that we carry on or around us or ubiquitous or ambient computing that may be surrounding us can actually determine these contextual situations moving into the future. So are we going to use those new pieces of data to inform the interaction or is it going to come separately we will be using those. So there, there, if you think about it, there are kind of three broad categories of what I was calling context. One is what was just said in the conversation thus far. I might refer back to something that was said, uh, you know, two or three terms ago and build on that. We both have heard that and that's shared context that we have. So that's one kind of context. Uh, computers are fairly good at capturing that now with some of the larger mm-hmm. models that we've seen from uh, some of the tech companies and others. The second kind of context is context of the world around us, shared world knowledge that we both have. We both know that words fly, except ostriches don't, so forth. And we could use that context without having to explicitly talk about it in the conversation. So that world knowledge, if you will, is another kind of context. And then there's the third type, which is the one you mentioned, which is knowledge of each other. Uh, and it could be the age, their goals, their needs, uh, and other things. The latter is the hardest in some ways for the computer to detect automatically, particularly given new speakers who are interacting with it. But it's also something that could be brought in from other uh, other sources. We may know, for example, if you have a person calling into a call center for support, we may know something about that particular customer based on their their account records and so forth after we've authenticated them. So we could get additional knowledge of the other person in the conversation through those means. So we really have to get to a point where we can bring all of this stuff together as easily and naturally as humans do. And how are we doing that? How are we getting to that point? We are doing that through a few different ways. We are doing that by bringing in more types of data, data, that comes in uh, in chunks. For example, we can ingest books and documents or other kinds of photographs, other kinds of data ahead of time and build a model, if you will, that provides context for the conversation. And we also have data coming in in real time, streaming data. And for example, as we are talking, we are both now sharing data with each other that uh, context for the conversation. Uh, so we have to be doing data ingestion And we have to be doing it at very large scale to really cover all of the kinds of things that you and I might have in common or know in common. Uh, So that's one way. Those data that come in have to have a source. How do we get the data in? Maybe it's documents, but maybe there's sensors out in the world. We might get weather data from weather sensors. We have now sensors in our homes as well with our smart home devices. There's a lot of data about, for example, which room I'm in and which lights are on, et cetera because my smart home controller knows all of that, use that. Uh, So, for example, if I ask my smart home controller right now to turn off the light, it knows which light I'm referring to because it knows which room I'm in. So those are data that come in from the immediate context, 
through some different kinds of sensors. There are sensors in our cars, there are wearable devices that we wear, all of which producing data. With the user's permission, of course, to be cognizant of privacy, we want to be able to use some of that data in order to create context. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned, one of the tricky issues there is so figuring out the right balance between being helpful and being relevant and privacy. Is there any way to actually sort of hide or have complete privacy moving forward? Or has the world just changed in such a way that we're so interconnected now that you may have privacy in the sense of your data being abstracted from your identity, but actual collection of the data is kind of a fact of life? The answer is yes to both. There is a way to be mostly private, which is you can go off the grid. No one necessarily wants to do that in, in this day and age, uh, just like you can uh, use cash instead of credit cards and not have anyone track what you're buying. But there is kind of a more, I think, modern solution to this question, which is that just because some data is being sensed doesn't mean that data has to be collected centrally in a form that could be misused. Uh, so I'll give you an example of this. If you use predictive typing on uh, a phone, I know this works on the Google phones and uh, on, on Android phones with the Android keyboard. As you're typing, we will predict the words and sometimes even phrases or sentences that we think you're going to type. Those predictions are personalized to you. So Camille's predictions are different from Ashwin's predictions. And What's interesting about that example is we do that without the data ever leaving your phone. So Google never sees your data. Google servers never see your data. It's done completely privately. So you have a, a little AI engine sitting on the phone that's keeping my data local and learning from how I respond? Right. It's a combination of two things. One is that. So there is an AI engine embedded in your phone that can do a, a local learning to help you without necessarily revealing any private data to anyone else. There is also a technology called federated learning. I think Google published this a couple of years ago, which can aggregate the learnings from typing across billions of phones in a completely private way. So without your data ever leaving the phone, if you're starting to type something that you have never typed before, but thousands of other people have, we still want to be able to predict a likely next step. And we can aggregate the learnings from multiple devices without ever looking at your data. Is the technology is called federated learning. It's also used for federated data analytics and is very, very powerful. So there are new technologies like this where you do some level of edge computing or edge ML, machine learning, mm -hmm. along with federated learning to provide the kind of help that people would, would value in a completely privacy-safe way. One additional component to add to this is there are also technologies, uh, for example, data loss prevention from Google Cloud, which will filter input streams of data for any kind of personally identifiable information. You know, if you have a document, for example, and you're trying to process that document, let's say you're an insurance company and you need to process uh, records or invoices or other things, we can automatically find and delete or mask examples of PII, personally identifiable information, so that your name or address, social security number, phone, et cetera, are never shared. And those things can be done automatically. So in the event that your application does require data to be centralized, identifiable data can still be masked to preserve your privacy. 
So there are a number of techniques that can be used to, I think, help people with AI in today's world without violating privacy. I'm going to pester you a little bit on this one thing because you mentioned the phone learning my particular answers. And I've actually wondered about that because I feel like my phone is getting better at predicting how I'm going to respond to something. And it's like a personal challenge. I almost never type the thing that it ends up showing me partly because I'm getting, I get annoyed that it's right. That is what I was going to type, darn it. And then I change it. You know, I purposely change it to something else. So I'm kind of wondering, are we customizing for me, Camille, an individual, or are we just pigeonholing? Are we ending up being, this is what you usually say. So over and over again, we're going to feed you the thing that you usually say so that you really never branch out. And now you're kind of becoming a caricaturization of yourself. How do you avoid that problem? So that's an example of a larger problem that sometimes is called the filter bubble. When you read news, for example, on a news feed online, regardless of which site you use, when you listen to, to radio, I, I dare say this may happen with some of the podcast recommendation algorithms that maybe your podcast feeds into and typing on the phone and other things. As these personalization models get better and better at modeling you, they get also better and better at filtering out things that you wouldn't want to see. But in doing so, they're also now restricting and in some sense narrowing you into a filter bubble. You're living in a little bubble world of your own with very little peripheral vision into what, what else is going on. So to avoid that, algorithms need to be designed in ways that do allow a little bit of what in machine learning we call exploration, addition to exploitation building on what we already know about you. And so following low-risk, tried-and-tested route, you also want to be experimenting a little bit and exploring other alternatives. How much you explore versus exploit depends on the use case. If you're typing uh, and your job is just to get this thing typed and move on to other things and it's not important enough, maybe more exploitation is fine. Once in a while, you might type something different. But most of the time, is right, just move on to something else. If you're reading news, uh, you sure as hell do want a broader viewpoint because otherwise we just end up with more and more segmented viewpoints of people that never talk to each other. People have a confirmation bias. They like to read what they already believe. It's always going to challenge a little bit. So depending on the application, we can tweak these trade-offs and give you the kind of broader worldview that you would like while still helping you expeditiously on the path that you probably are going to take. I find this fascinating. There's a data scientist sitting somewhere that's basically deciding how much of the news, which could be anything anywhere on the internet, you're going to see that you already are looking for, already expecting, already believe versus something that's a new perspective or a perspective that you would disagree with. Like there's a human who's making some decision within an algorithm as to how much exploration will happen in any given app. Is that what you're telling me? Just make sure I understand that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going one step further, which is there's a human that is designing an algorithm that is then making those decisions. And in the early days of personalized news feeds or personalized, any, you know, personalized movie recommendations or personalized shopping, et cetera, the algorithm and the algorithmic choices had started to become a problem. What we are reaching now is a phase where 
these algorithms are actually machine learning models, they're deep learning models, which can aggregate a lot of data across a lot of people and make these decisions fairly intelligently within a set of biases or policies that you provide. Instead of hand-tweaking an algorithm to make that decision, you kind of come up with a set of policies that you would like the machine learning system to work with. The system then learns and works with those policies. Uh, it learns across a lot of data from a lot of people in a privacy-safe way, as we just talked about. Uh, and so you end up with much better outcome than you would in a hand-tailored algorithm or even in a hand-picked news anchor show, uh, old-style news show, where someone has decided that for the audience of this particular TV channel, these are the stories to, to tell, or this is the right bias or spin to put on those stories. Hmm. But in this case, I'm my own personal consumer at the end, and I'm not making the decision as to who's making the decision for me, right? I'm just opening a browser and looking at, you know, today's news, and I, I'm not making any inputs into how much exploration is happening. Like you said, it was a data scientist setting that up within an algorithm that's then making that decision and modifying it over time. Right. And, and that's a good point. I think that's something that, uh, you know, we technologists should take home in our design process, which is, I think most of these sites do give the, the consumers, uh, the readers, the listeners, a way to provide some input into whether they want to see more or less like a certain story or more or less about a certain set of interests, uh, those are fairly easy to do through very simple thumbs up, thumbs down type controls even. But we don't necessarily give people explicit knobs that let them adjust how broad or narrow they, they want to be with respect to a particular topic. Those knobs do exist and there are ways that internally these algorithms get tweaked, uh, but surfacing those and making those available to consumers might be a good idea. What kind of cybersecurity risks are introduced into these types of models, especially around like natural language conversation and interaction and kind of this personalization or customization that's being done? Uh, I don't know that it's any different from cybersecurity risks with any other kinds of technology. These technologies are based on a lot of data, of course, including private data and sensitive data. HIPAA, for example, in healthcare, we have health data and so forth, or the health providers do. And so securing user data and anonymizing it when needed and sharing it in a privacy-safe way is critical. Those places where the data is secured is, of course, open to cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And it could be cybersecurity uh, vulnerabilities at the storage points. It could be also at the use points when data is getting transmitted from point A to point B, either for processing or for gathering. It could be intercepted along the way. So one of the things that we hear a lot about is, and um, we do this at Google as well, is we have encryption of data both at rest and in motion, which is uh, data is encrypted uh, when it's stored. It is encrypted when it's transmitted. And we also now have data being encrypted during processing. So actually take, uh, for example, if you had data as a company, we'll take that data and give you the, a way to process that encrypted data without ever having to decrypt it first. Because the algorithms work directly on encrypted data. 
so th- there are techniques that are being developed now to help with the cybersecurity issues. But in terms of sort of language and uh, conversational data versus other kinds of data, I think there's a lot of user data that's equally sensitive, not just conversational data. And it's probably the same for both. Where would you like to see AI go and how would you like to see it being used? So I I like AI to become invisible, to become ubiquitous and a natural part of your life in a way that is helpful to you, but doesn't necessarily have to be called out as, hey, that's the AI doing it. If you think about electric motors, for example, this this very esoteric technology, not a lot of people even know how it works. We, We have probably dozens of electric motors in the home in all of our devices, but we never think of that. You know, look at a microwave and say, oh, wait a minute, there's an electric motor in there. Likewise, there shouldn't be need to say there's AI in there. It's just my food's getting cooked the way I want it to be cooked, and it just works. Uh, so I think the more AI gets better and better at just working and doing the right thing for me, the less attention we will need to pay to it. This is kind of the dream of ubiquitous computing, the computers or algorithms everywhere and just so invisible out in the environment, but doing the right things for us to make our lives easier and more productive. But then you want to make sure they're doing the right things. They've been set up. (laughs) Absolutely. And so we do need people setting them up, right? Just like we do need people setting up our motors, right? So our cars don't crash and our fridges don't spoil our food. Well, really fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ashwin Ram from Google for our joining today. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Camille. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.